Look at verse 11. Now a famine came over all Egypt and Canaan, and great affliction with it, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers there the first time. And on the second, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family was disclosed to Pharaoh. Hmm. So a famine hit after Joseph was rejected by his brothers. What happened to Israel after Israel rejected Jesus? A famine hit. They were driven from the land. The diaspora. Kicked out, spread among the nations. For the last 1,893 years prior to coming back into the land, but even now, there's still intense persecution, you could call it famine, against the Jewish people. And what happened to the land itself after Jesus was rejected, after the Jewish people were driven out? It became barren. It was, it was awful. You can see old pictures of it. It's not like that now. But for some 1,800 years, it was desolate. And it had not been a desolation in the days of Jesus. It was only after Jesus was rejected that it took on this famine-like appearance. And it's amazing to me here also, Joseph, Stephen takes the time to mention Joseph was, was seen by his brothers twice. And the first time they didn't recognize him. And the second time they did. What about the Jewish people and Jesus? The first time they didn't recognize him. Oh, but the second time, the second time they will. Joseph was a servant in the house of Potiphar. The first time he was lifted up. The first time he was raised up in in Egypt there, a servant to Potiphar. Jesus was a servant to the world the first time he came. But then Joseph went to prison. Jesus went to prison. Hades. But Joseph was brought out of prison. Jesus was brought out of prison. Resurrected, ascended. And the second time now that Joseph is brought out, he's not just over Potiphar's house as a servant, he's over all of Egypt as king. He is second only to Pharaoh the second time. Just as Jesus will the second time be ruler over all the earth. Second only to God, not in terms of equality, but in terms of position. Because think about it, Jesus will be prince over all the earth. He will be king over all the earth. He will rule and reign from Jerusalem over all the earth. God will still be over the universe. Does that mean Jesus is subservient? No. Jesus is the physical manifestation, representation of God in the flesh on earth. But the parallel between Joseph and Pharaoh and Jesus and the Father is very interesting. Joseph is this great picture of Jesus. 
Stephen again points out that it was on the second visit that the brothers recognized Joseph. Well, guess what? In the second coming, Jesus' brothers will will recognize Jesus. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. I'll pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication, so they'll look on me who they have pierced. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. They will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. I mean, this is the stuff of prophecy. Joseph's very life. Joseph is a prophecy in his life of the coming of Jesus. Zechariah the prophet, chapter 13, verse 6, also says, And one will say to him, What are these wounds between your arms? And he will say, Those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. Jesus will say that. Well, Joseph was wounded by his own. So the picture is remarkable. And Stephen is laying this out and and he's showing it through the Hebrew Scriptures and through the experience of Israel. Verse 14, he continues. Go in verse 13. On the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers and Joseph's family was disclosed to Pharaoh. Verse 14. Then Joseph sent word and invited Jacob, his father, and all his relatives to come to him. Seventy-five persons in all. And Jacob went down to Egypt and there he and our fathers died. From there they were removed to Shechem and laid in the tomb which Abraham had purchased for a sum of money from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. But as the time of the promise was approaching with God, which God had assured to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt. Remember, God said to Abraham, 400 years you're going to be in Egypt. So they were in there 400 years. But as that time came to pass, and the people were massively increasing by leaps and bounds, we're told in verse 18, Stephen continues, and there arose another king over Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph. Well, now Stephen is in Exodus. He's just covered Genesis, now we're into Exodus. And it was he who took shrewd advantage of our race and mistreated our fathers so that they would expose their infants and they would not survive. Again, Listen to the underlying context here of what Stephen is saying. They grew. They multiplied outside the land. God blessed them outside the land. God took care of His people outside the land. And it seems like the Jewish people always do multiply outside the land. Always are blessed outside the land. Because it's not the land that does it, it's the Lord. It's not the mount that does it, it's God. It's not the temple that does it, it's Jesus. Now in verse 20, Stephen says it was at this time that Moses was born. And he was lovely in the sight of God. And he was nurtured three months in his father's home. It's, it's been said, tradition said, Moses was so stunning, so good looking that heads turned when he walked by. That he really was an, uh, an amazing looking guy. Kind of like me. You know, I mean, people look, walk by, and fall. <laughs> Something just happened in verse 20. You see where Stephen, all of a sudden, he just made a turn. See, first he's reminded them that all God had done for and through Israel Without the land or the temple, he did it outside the land or the temple. So much for the fortress of security. Now he's turning to the law of Moses. So now he's answering the next accusation that he was trying to alter the law. And he goes straight to Moses, the fabric of their salvation. That thin fabric. Flawless, but again, 
impossible for man to keep from tearing. Verse 21, And after he had been set aside, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and nurtured him as her own son. Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians. He was a man of power and words and deeds. But when he was approaching the age of 40, it entered his mind to visit his brethren, the sons of Israel. And when he saw one of them being unjustly treated, he defended him and took vengeance for the oppressed by striking down the Egyptian. And he supposed that his brethren understood that God was granting them deliverance through him. But they did not understand. Now this is fascinating. The Spirit through Stephen has just given us insight into something that we might not have known otherwise. And that is that Moses was thinking at the age of 40, Hey, I can deliver my people. I'm the guy. I'm a prince of Egypt. I've got the power. I've got the looks. I've got the strength. I can deliver my people. He's already starting to sense his destiny at the age of 40. Starting to sense that perhaps there's something here he really can do for his people. The call was on his heart, but his timing was bad. And that'll happen. Sometimes God will put a call on your heart, and then you try to make happen what God has called you to. Just wait. If God has a call on your heart, He will open the door when the time comes. He will make it right when the time comes. You don't have to rush into it. If He calls you, He's going to provide for you. He's going to lead you. He doesn't call you and say, okay, good luck. You're called. Now make something happen with your life. He calls and He leads. And so here's Moses sensing a call by God. And what does he do? He kills an Egyptian. Well, I'm the deliverer. Of course I'm going to kill an Egyptian. And God's going, you need to spend some time with sheep. (laughs) Think about this. What would have happened had the people followed Moses right at the first? Moses would have gotten all the credit and the people of Israel would have been crushed. So, verse 26 On the following day, he appeared to them as they were fighting together, these two guys that he had defended, and he tried to reconcile them in peace, saying, Men, you are brethren. Why do you injure one another? So now the murderer is the peacemaker. But the one who was injuring his neighbor pushed him away, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? You did not not mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday, do you? At this remark, Moses fled and became an alien in the land of Midian. I love that the Bible still uses the word alien. It does. An alien in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. The great lawgiver, Stephen reminds, was at first the great loser. (laughs) He violated the law before it was even given. He murdered before it was even listed among the Ten Commandments. He didn't even wait for the law to violate it. Verse 30, after 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in the flame of a burning thorn bush. When Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight. And as he approached to look more closely, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Well, Moses shook with fear. 
and would not venture to look. But the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt and have heard their groans, and I have come down to rescue them. Come now, and I will send you to Egypt. See, before it was me. (laughs) Before Moses was thinking, I can deliver this people, and now God's saying, No, no, I will deliver them. I'm going to use you. But this is my work, Moses, not yours. And once again we have, just as with Joseph, Moses was not recognized as their deliverer the first time around, but only the second time around. Jesus not recognized as the deliverer of Israel the first coming. In the second coming, He will be recognized as the deliverer. Verse 35, this Moses whom they disowned, saying... Who made you a ruler and judge is the one whom God sent to be both a ruler and a deliverer with the help of the angel who appeared to him in the thorn bush. Stephen's laying out a case for Christ. And what's remarkable is he hasn't mentioned the name of Jesus once. He's just given them pictures. He's using their own understanding, their own history, their own experience to point out something far greater than what they had yet understood. And notice Stephen here says it was with the help of the angel. Back in Exodus, the Malach Yahweh, the angel of the Lord. Well, who who was this helpful messenger who, by the way, spoke with the very voice of God? Let me ask you, what messenger in coming to the earth opened his mouth and spoke the very word of God? Jesus. And so I, and I taught this when we went through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, when we went through the Hebrew scriptures. I do believe the Malach Yahweh, the angel of the Lord, the Malach is simply the messenger of Yahweh, is, in fact, was, in fact, Jesus. In a pre incarnational coming, the uh, Christophany, the angel of the Lord saw to this deliverance back then. Verse 36. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the sons of Israel, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Ah, Stephen's getting to it. Remember what Moses said? God's going to raise up one from among you, a prophet, great, mighty, like me. Verse 38 This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness together with the angel who was speaking to him on Mount Sinai and who was with our fathers until he received living oracles to pass on to you. Who spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai? Stephen sets up a little conundrum here. There's an angel there. And he says the angel was speaking to Moses on Mount Sinai. Wait, but but it was the Lord who spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, wasn't it? Yeah. You're picking up what I'm putting down. But he's still laying this out before them. And Stephen quotes Moses speaking of the prophet. Who was who is the prophet of Deuteronomy 18? Unquestionably Jesus. Verse 39. 
Our fathers were unwilling to be obedient to him, but repudiated him, that is Moses, in their hearts and turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. For this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what happened to him. At that time they made a calf and brought a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. Listen, while Moses was up on the, on the mountain receiving the law, the people were down below rejoicing in the works of their hands. The law was intended as spiritual, the work of their hands, fleshly, physical. Moses is receiving the law, and they're rejoicing in the work of their hands. And by the way, in the same way, when Jesus was lifted up on Mount Calvary, fulfilling the law, the Jewish people were rejoicing in the work of their hands. And again, the parallels are stunning. It's easy for you to see, easy for me to understand, because we're looking back now. At what Stephen is saying from this side as through a filter to the history of Israel, he's laying it out for them, trying to help them to grasp what really took place, what it was all truly about. Verse 42. But God turned away and delivered them up to serve the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. It was not to me that you offered victims and sacrifices 40 years in the wilderness. Was it, O house of Israel? Wow, that's remarkable. quoting Joshua now, so we're already into Joshua looking back. And the Lord said something that perhaps you didn't know. While the children of Israel were wandering in the desert, while God was providing manna for them every morning, water from the, from the rocks, water to drink, manna to feed on, taking care of them, providing a, a cloud by day for covering from the hot sun, and the fire at night for light and warmth. While God was providing all of that, they were offering sacrifices to Moloch in the wilderness. And he didn't wipe them out. Some Christians today look at America and say, why has God not wiped us out? He is incredibly patient. He is slow to move. He is filled with grace. This country is still here for the same reason that the children of Israel made it through 40 years while still sacrificing to foreign gods. Because God is gracious. And He's patient. Stephen quoting again the Lord, verse 43, You also took along the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of the god Rampha, the images which you made to worship. I will also remove you beyond Babylon. Stephen deftly quotes the prophet Amos, chapter 5, verses 25 through 27. And he points out now that Israel's exile to Babylon was due to the idolatry that was rooted all the way back to Egypt. It didn't start in the land. They didn't just pick up the idols of Canaan's land. They picked up idols in Egypt. They carried them through the wilderness. They gave child sacrifices to them in the wilderness before they ever even got to the promised land. Stephen's dredging up the skeletons in the closet of Israel, and it is not a pretty sight. And I imagine at this point in Stephen's testimony, the Sanhedrin's just red-faced, steam coming out of their ears. But they can say nothing because this is the history. Don't believe me? Start in Genesis and read it. Read it through. Everything that Stephen is saying here is directly out of the Hebrew Scriptures. 
So verse 44, our fathers had the tabernacle of testimony in the wilderness just as He who spoke to Moses directed Him to make it according to the pattern which He had seen. And having received it in their turn, our fathers brought in it with or brought it in with Joshua upon disposing of the nations whom God drove out before our fathers until the time of David. Now, now Stephen's ramping up. He's speeding up. He's doing what I do a lot of times. You know, you start at the beginning of a Wednesday night, you can take your time, and then you realize you're running out of time. So you cram it all in. That's kind of what he's doing here. He says in verse 46, David found favor in God's sight and asked that he might find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. Now, what Stephen's already done is dispensed with the, the ability of the Jewish people to keep the law. The law is your security blanket is no security blanket because you've torn it up. You did not follow it. You followed these other gods. You, you did all of these things. The history is replete with you ignoring the law. So don't tell me that I'm here altering the law. And now Stephen returns once again to the temple. He's covered Abraham, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, David. And by the way, if you want to, take the time, go back and look at each one of these men of faith through the Hebrew Scriptures and look at them as pictures or portraits of Jesus. We could have done that tonight. It would have taken a little longer. But it's fascinating to think through how each of these in one way or another, were precursors of Jesus. David, a precursor of the son of David. King David, the greatest king of Israel, a precursor of the greatest king who will ever rule or reign on this planet when Jesus comes. And they're all pictures of this coming one. Verse 47, But it was Solomon who built a house for him. However... The Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands, Stephen says to the Sanhedrin. As the prophet says, Isaiah 66, verses 1 and 2, Heaven is my throne, and earth is the footstool of my feet. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what place is there for my repose? Was it not my hand which made all these things? If you... Maybe you don't know this. The daily kids, a couple of the daily kids built a house on their property. I kid you not. We're not talking about a tree house. I'm talking about a house. They built a little house. It has a front door. It locks. You go in the front door, a couple of steps up, you're in. And the main floor has a little TV and a table in it. And there's a ladder that goes up to a loft above. It has a couple of mattresses up there for them to sleep. It has electricity. I mean, it's unbelievable. And I would never stay in it. It's tiny. You know, that's not for me. I wouldn't move my family into it. That's a bad illustration of God saying to David, you want to build me a house? Okay. Clearly, you have a little misunderstanding of my overall size. (laughs) You want to build me a house. God says, heaven is my throne. I mean, heaven. All of heaven. That's His throne. Earth is just a footstool, man. That's all it is to the Lord. What kind of a house can you build me? And even Solomon, upon the completion of the temple saw the irony in his grandiose and glorious work. 
Solomon said in 2 Chronicles 6.18, Will God indeed dwell with mankind on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house which I have built. Stephen has just unraveled the fabric of their salvation and has radically shaken the very fortress of their security, the temple. And now Stephen lowers the boom. Verse 51. You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the Righteous One, a moniker for Messiah, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. Boom! I mean, this is... What boldness to say what he's saying here. And Stephen is saying the problem is not the rejection of the law or the temple. It is you resisting the Holy Spirit. You're resisting the Spirit of God. And you've rejected the righteous one. That's the issue here. Not whether or not someone's coming along and rejecting the law. Or trying to tear down the temple. That's not the problem at all. Don't you see, Stephen says. You're doing just what your fathers before you had done. What was that? They killed Isaiah. Sawed him in half. They killed Zechariah between the porch and the altar. They threw Jeremiah in a pit more than once. His life was a pit. (laughs) Hebrews 11.37 says they were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. That's the life of the prophet. So ill-treated by the very people that the prophets were sent to bring the truth to. But the apex of all that, the ultimate final point, happened on top of Mount Moriah at a place called Calvary, where the Jewish people and the entire world, no one is, is innocent of this, betrayed and murdered the righteous one, Jesus the Christ. Stephen says, you who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. How have they not kept the law in the most basic way possible? How does anyone not keep the law? Galatians 3.24, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. How do you not keep the law? By not coming to Christ. The only way to keep the law is to come to Jesus, who fulfilled the law. That's why the law was given. That's the point of the whole thing. They killed the one about whom the entire law and the prophets was written. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me, Jesus said. So you haven't kept the law. Because the law all comes to the fine point of the righteous one. And boy, if you think there was steam coming out of their ears before, now the council is ready to erupt. Verse 54. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick. 
They were pierced literally to the heart. And they began gnashing their teeth at him. You've got to be really angry at someone to gnash your teeth at him. I'm not even sure how to gnash teeth. Anybody, did, that, was that, did that work? I'm doing well, thanks. Okay, good. Because I've never really tried. I really, I've grinded my teeth in my sleep, but I've never really gnashed my teeth. I don't think I've ever been that angry with my children that I would go... <laughs> but that's what they're doing here. They're just grinding and... and There's the rage in their faces. Now look at the contrast. They're beet red, gnashing, grinding, and being full of the Holy Spirit, Stephen, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Wow. He's still totally chill. Stephen is at perfect peace. These guys are ready to explode. And he's just like, he's got a vision. Heavens are opened. You know what's really interesting to me? Stephen began this sermon in Acts chapter 7, verse 2, saying, Hear me, brethren and fathers, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham. And now suddenly, wonderfully, Stephen looks up and he sees the glory of God. He began talking about the God of glory, and now he sees the glory of God. And it's absolutely true that the more we talk about the God of glory, the more we see the glory of God. The more we ponder the God of glory, the more He reveals the glory of God. And Stephen is in just this beautiful place, absolute perfect peace. If you were watching the scene unfold right now, as some of you may be doing, you'd be going, Stephen, dude, duck. (laughs) It's not good. Don't you see what's about to happen? This is not going to end well. If you were watching the movie, the popcorn would be dropping out of your mouth. Stephen! And he's just... He's at perfect peace. Stephen was just a waiter. Right? A a, a server of tables at the widow's food distribution. Look at him now. Look at what he sees. Again, behold, he says, verse 56, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And this brings us to the third and final part of our teaching, the conduct of Jesus. The conduct of Jesus. Luke tells us, and then Stephen pronounces it. Luke tells us that Stephen looked up and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. And now Stephen himself says, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. He's standing. That's the conduct of Jesus. Through all of this, how does Jesus conduct Himself? Well, it's interesting. Mark 16, verse 19 says, When the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, He was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says, When He had made purification of sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Hebrews 10.12, Having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, He sat down at the right hand of God. And Hebrews 12.2 says, He has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Why? In the tabernacle, in the temple, there was no chair. The one piece of furniture missing in the whole place 
was a chair. The priests did not sit down. The moment they entered the temple courts, they were on their feet for their entire service. There was no seat. It's like working at McDonald's. You got time to lean, you got time to clean. I used to hate that. No chair. So why does Jesus sit down after He's made purification for sins as our great high priest? Because the job is done. There's no more work. You don't have to keep sacrificing. The sacrifice is over. Have a seat, son. And so Jesus sat down. The conduct of Christ. Listen, He's not pacing the halls of heaven right now. He is not checking His pulse every few minutes. (laughs) How much longer, Father? It's getting a little stressful. Do you see what Obama just signed in the law? (laughs) He's not anxiously wringing His hands over the state of the earth. Pacing back and forth. He sat down. Jesus, right now, is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He's chill. He has shalom, shalom. He is at perfect peace. But here, His conduct has changed all of a sudden. He's standing. And it is the only time in Scripture we see Jesus standing at the right hand of the throne of God. What's He doing? Oh, I think He's cheering Stephen on. Go, Stephen. I don't think Jesus could stay seated once Stephen got rolling. You know? He's just like, oh yeah, angels gather around, listen to this, this is good stuff. And he's on his feet, cheering Stephen on, ready to welcome him into heaven. What does Stephen see? He sees Jesus standing. Come on, boy. Come on home. Ready to receive. That's when Jesus stands up. When we see Him in the clouds, I guarantee He'll be standing. Arms wide open, ready to receive. In verse 57, Now, but they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and rushed at Him in one impulse. And when they had driven Him outside the city, they began stoning Him. That word stoning is just this constant... Over and over and over, this non-stop stoning of him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And we'll get to him. They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Now, if you're being stoned, do you have the wherewithal, the presence of mind to look up and go... Catch me, Lord. I'm coming. Receive me, Lord. Here I am. Stephen did. And then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Oh, this hurts! Stop this! No. (laughs) Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep. And Stephen was never more like Christ than in that moment. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Lord, do not hold the sin against them. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Father, receive my spirit. Stephen dies just like Jesus. They were seeing red. They were deeply offended by His words because they stood condemned. But Stephen Stephen was at perfect peace. And the word there that Luke chooses to use 
Having said this, he fell asleep. Is right on. It's right on. Luke doesn't say, and a big rock clobbered him and he passed out cold and died. No, he didn't. It was not a stone that killed him. The Lord Jesus just received up his spirit as he fell asleep. My grandmother died in her sleep. October 1999. And my friend went over, my friend is paramedic down in Southern California, was the first one on the scene after my dad had called for help. He got there quickly. Went into the room. He told me later, he said, Rick, I've seen a lot of people who have died in their sleep. I've seen a lot of people who have just died. And he said, typically it's not pretty. Oftentimes I will see what we call in the business the death throes. That is, people will be scrunched up or there will be a look on their face. And we actually try to, and I know this sounds morbid, but mold the face a little bit before people see the person because it's a little disturbing if you've never seen it before. He said, Rick, I walked into your grandma's room. She was lying in bed. The covers were pulled up. She had a hanky in her right hand. And she was at complete peace. No doubt, she had gotten up in the middle of the night, got a glass of water, got back into bed, pulled up the covers, and no doubt, the Lord said, Irene, Irene, it's time to go home. And she just went. Now, for a woman of 94 lying in her bed, what a beautiful way to end her life. But for a young man, Stephen's age, in the midst of a stoning to go that exact same way, he just fell asleep. He's just like Jesus. Perfect peace. Why was Stephen at such peace? Because his eyes in that moment were fixed on heaven. Because in that moment, he literally saw Jesus. And John tells us in 1 John 3, 1, we know that when He appears, we will be like Him because we will see Him just as He is. And so Stephen, in his martyrdom, he forgives them just like Jesus and like a little baby or like my grandmother. He just fell asleep. Let me end with this verse, Hebrews 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Lord, We fix our eyes on You. We recognize the wonder of everything that Stephen preached on that fateful day. The power and the passion and the clarity and the the biblical nature of all that he said. We realize, Lord, he was at perfect peace because he was filled with Your Spirit. And we recognize in those last moments, Lord, when he died... He was at perfect peace because He saw you. And Lord, I pray, I'm not praying that we all just see you in our death. I'm praying tonight, Lord Jesus, help us to see you in our life. To live our lives with our eyes fixed on you. 
looking to, toward the hope that we have in heaven. Living with the hope we have in Jesus. Always looking for you. Always listening to you. And keeping every last nuance of the law because we've come to Jesus. Help us to see you better than we ever have. And we do pray, Lord Jesus, come quickly. In Jesus' name. Amen.